When it comes to investing, retirement, and legacy planning, the decisions you make today can greatly impact the quality of life for both you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight, unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your financial future. Good news. You found the Growing Your Wealth radio show with Brian Evans. Brian is the founder of Madrona Financial Services, and with his background as a CPA, he brings a unique perspective to the investment and financial planning world. So get ready for an hour full of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Welcome to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. Thank you so much. Welcome to Growing Your Wealth, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to invest better, live better, retire better, and give better. My name's Jeff Shade, and as always, I am just here to ask the questions for you. But the words of wisdom and solid advice come from the expert Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. How you doing today, Brian? Doing great. Thanks, Jeff. Always glad to hear it. Glad to be with you. Glad to be with our listeners again this weekend. We're going to be talking about your fiscal fitness, your financial education. And this week, Brian, I want to start with the fact that baby boomers own most of the small businesses nationwide and, of course, right here in the greater Seattle area. So there's going to be millions of retirements in the next 10 years. So this speaks to the topic of whether you have a viable and saleable business, and if so, how to get the best price. This is also a topic if you're a buyer because there could be some great opportunities for you. So let's start off, Brian, with talking about those people who may have a business for sale. I think the first question is, how do you decide whether or not you even have a saleable business? Yeah, there's a lot to talk about here because you're right, there's millions of small businesses in the United States. And my point of the baby boomer discussion is the the average baby boomer is, I believe the age range is like 57 years old to 75 years old. So if you're in that group, guess what? Uh, most people think they're going to retire somewhere between, you know, age 57 and 75, I would say. Most people don't think they're going to work into their 80s, and most people don't think they're going to retire at age 50. So if you own a business, you are likely to be in that age range. And if you're in that age range, you're thinking about it, or you should be thinking about what is my succession plan? I want to talk today about, and we'll start with your question there, as do you even have a business? And the reason I bring that up is because a lot of people say, well, I have this business. And they go, uh, no, you don't have a business. You have a job. Mm-hmm. No, it's a business. My name's on the door. Yeah, but when you leave, what's left behind? Well, nothing. That's right. It's a job because they can't transfer it to somebody else. So if you're a sole practitioner attorney and you leave your place of work and try and sell that, that office location, you're not selling a law firm. It's not really a firm. It's just you doing a service and getting paid. So that's, that's a job, more like a job than it is a business. And another example would be where somebody has, they say they have a business. Okay, you have a business. How much do you make? Well, I make 80000 a year. Okay, how much would it cost to replace you? Probably hundred grand. <laughs> well, you don't have a business. You don't have anything to sell because once you take you out of the equation and replace you, it has no profit. So that's not a business either. So that, that's why we, we do have to address before we even get into talking about selling a business, do you even have a business to sell? So the first step is deciding whether or not you have a saleable business. Now, Andy, who runs the pizza place down the street, Andy is the owner of that pizza place, but he doesn't necessarily have to be there to run the pizza place. So he would have a saleable business, right? He would if he has a profitable business. That's a great, great thing. And we call it a turnkey business. Okay. Will they be able to turn the key and open that thing up every day without him there? That's great. That's the first step towards this. You know, you have to train your replacement or, or hire them or whatever. 
it has to be in place to have a business, and that's why you know a McDonald's or something like that. That's a business because right. the people that own those McDonald's, they probably don't even show up ever. <laughs> uh, you know, they're right, they're right. they're at Daniel's having having steak dinners, <laughs> sure. going through the going to the McDonald's to get a hamburger. <laughs> so that's a business. And so in this case with the pizza shop owner, as you mentioned, if you say, "Well, yeah, I I, I run it, or, or I I'm not, don't have to be there. It runs by itself." I said, "Great. How much does it make a year?" Oh, taxable income about ten thousand. Mm. That's not very good for all the wear and tear on on your on your soul to own a restaurant and all the turnover and everything else. That's that's probably nobody's going to want to buy that one. But if you say, well, I, you know, I make three hundred thousand a year, I'm like, okay, now we're talking. You yeah. you got a business, so it does matter what your profitability is. So unfortunately for Andy, he is there all the time now because he just can't find qualified workers to work for him. And he's almost offering a managerial job to (laughs) anybody who walks in the door who looks like they may be able to put two and two together. So Andy could possibly have a business. It is a profitable business because he is busy all the time. So Andy's there just because he can't find qualified workers. But on a normal basis, he wouldn't necessarily have to be there. So it's possible, possible that he has a saleable business. Now, let's talk about our other friend, Paul. And Paul might have actually a personal injury attorney firm. And uh, Paul is the main attorney there. Does he have a saleable business or not? Depends on whether he has attorneys under him that are working there. And maybe he has some relationship with an insurance carrier or referral sources or whatever, has a reputation. Now, if he's not there again, is he going to continue to get those referrals? That's one part of do you have a business? Is it going to be really easy for his employees to just start their own business rather than buying in? That might be a, something, you know, you, you just mentioned with the, the owners sometimes have to do all the work because they can't find anybody right now. Well, you know, if, if you lose your, your key staff and they can go elsewhere, then uh, you don't have as good of a business. If you have some way to keep them there, maybe, maybe they have a, maybe they're doing the buy-in. You might have a business there. So it depends on how easy it is to transfer the skill set to somebody else. If it's impossible, then probably you don't have one. So the first step is, uh, of course, deciding whether or not you have a saleable business. Let's say that you do have a saleable business. That is step number one. Next step, just like a house, you need to stage that business in order to attract buyers and to get the top price. So what's involved with staging a business? Right. So yeah, you bring up another point I thought of before I get to the staging is, is, is your revenue recurring or is it one-off type of revenue? So okay. with, the, with the attorney, that's kind of one-off stuff. You know, I had a big case. I closed it. Now what? Mm-hmm. Well, you got to wait for the next big case to come along. Well, that's not recurring. With the pizza place, you know, we know exactly how much we have. Mm-hmm. We, we, we know how much comes in each day of the week on average, each month, where it ebbs and flows, the time and everything like that. You, you probably have a pretty good sense of what your recurring revenue is. So, so that can be an aspect there, too. Now, when I talk about staging a business, think about your house. You want to sell your house. Do you just you know, leave your dirty socks on the floor and, and uh, <laughs> your dirty dishes out uh, and don't mow the lawn that month and uh, so on and so forth? And people are we're having open houses. I guess you could these days because people buy anything sight unseen for cash, right. 50000 above what, what you're asking. But in normal times, you wouldn't do that. You would stage it. You would pick up your dirty socks and not have dishes uh, laying out, you would have your landscaping done, a fresh coat of paint, uh, a candle burning with a, a nice smell or whatever it is, uh, maybe bake some warm cookies. So you walk in, ooh, I really like the way this place smells. But you would you would stage it. You'd make it really good. So the same thing could be said for a business. Because I've got this story I, I'll share. I was looking at buying another CPA firm. 
and his business was not well staged because I went in there and I said, well, how much money do you, do you make? He said, oh, I, I don't know. I think, uh, well, I got a schedule here and a schedule there. I'm like, your tax return? Do you have one? Said, well, I haven't got around to doing that last for last year's return. I'm like, huh. Okay, um, why don't you print me your profit and loss? Well, you know, I don't really have that on a computer. And in the end, I was like, you don't even know what you have. You don't know where your billings are. This guy did not have a business. I mean, a third of his billings were one client, a childhood friend that lived far away and was going to leave if, as soon as I bought the business. He didn't know how much he made. He finally told me how much he thought he made, and it was less than what it would cost to replace him. And he didn't have financials. I just got up and walked out. You got to be kidding me. You're a CPA firm and you can't give me a profit and loss statement or a tax return. You're killing me. <laughs> so, you know, that was an example of someone that did not have a business. But someone actually came and bought that thing. And then about two years later, uh, guess what? They closed it down yeah. completely. So, you know, there's, a, there's an example of somebody that did not stage their business well. So there's the physical aspect of your business. There's the financial aspect from the physical standpoint, as you said. You can have candles burning or cookies baking, that sort of thing. Probably doesn't make any difference if you've got a law firm, you've got something like that going on. But still, I mean, having the business tidy, having things all picked up, I mean, it's got to be attractive in order for people to be interested in that business. But from the financial aspect, you talked about having a good accounting system. What are some of the things that you would look for from a financial aspect if you are a business buyer that you want to make sure are in place? What would you look for? I want to have the risk reduced. So I want to know how much you've been making for years, the trends, uh, the top line, bottom line. So I have to have good accounting. First and foremost, I have to have tax returns up to date, profit and loss up to date, not a guess. It needs to be reconciled mm-hmm. and not, not the unreconciled ones that everybody ends up with at the end of the year. But everything reconciled right up to date, I want uh, all of that. I also want to know uh, about your systems and processes. I want them documented. I want to know that you have what happens when, when customers come in the door, how they're taken care of, that, that it's not just you and that you actually have a system. I want to know that all your contracts are up to date. You know, you got to have those contracts and, and so forth. And, you know, what, where are your revenue sources coming from? Where's the recurring revenue coming from, et cetera? Is there any specialized knowledge that you have? Have you transferred that to your staff? Is your staff going to stick around uh, if, if they do have those special skills? Or are you bringing them in uh, uh, in place of the person that's selling? Uh, the person that's selling, are they going to stick around a while? So, you know, these are the things that would, if I'm looking at a business to buy, I want these risk factors addressed and checked off the list. The more that are unchecked, <laughs> the less I'm going to pay. And if there's too many unchecked, items, I'm not going to pay anything. I'm, I'm just going to probably take over your client base and let you just close it down because I don't have to buy you. I'll just pick up what you leave behind because you don't really have a, a business. You didn't take care of it. And I want to make it very clear that Madrona Financial are not business brokers. We certainly don't, you know, like a real estate broker, help you in buying and selling a business in that respect. But there are things that you can do as a firm here that will help people stage their business better to get a better price for it, right? 
Absolutely. And and you have to plan ahead. Again, if you're the owner, you probably have been working a lot. You have to plan ahead and, and start figuring out how to outsource you. You have to get you out of the equation as much as possible. The more you're in the equation, the more risk someone's going to feel buying and, and going, well, you're not going to be here. So I don't want to pay too much for this. I don't know if there'll be anything left. Oh, no, no, no. I've, I've you know, I, I don't even bill out my time anymore. I've, I've got people here. I got processes. Oh, okay. Well, now, now we're talking. So uh, it's more of a turnkey business. Yeah. Okay. So that that's the kind of situation you're looking for is you're going to have to get yourself out of the equation as the owner or at least have a path towards that. And you want to start working on You don't want to start working on that on Tuesday and expect to sell the business on Thursday. <laughs> you know, think ahead, you know, have a plan for that, whether, you know, when you want to consider a succession plan, how you want it. Uh, the rest of the show will be talking about other attributes related to this. But in this section, we're just talking about, again, do we even have a business and what can we do to that business to make it more attractive to a potential buyer? We're talking about selling a business or buying a business this week here on Madrona Financial. We've just talked about staging a business for sale. On the show today, we'll be talking about something called EBITDA, which is a secret uh, language that CPAs use. We'll decipher that for you. Also, gross valuation, internal sale, selling to a family member, employees, or an external sale. All that and more here on Growing Your Wealth. In the meantime, if you have $500,000 or more to invest and you're looking to hire a new financial advisor, contact Madrona Financial Services to get your complimentary, no-cost, no-obligation financial plan. Call 844-MADRONA or request it online by visiting madronafinancial.com. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth. We'll be right back with more of our show after this. Tired of getting only half the story? We've got you covered with the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth with your host, Brian Evans. Now, here's Brian. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about a term called EBITDA. That's right. EBITDA is a secret CPA language we've talked about there a little bit. It may be Greek to uh, a lot of you, but it really isn't. So we'll talk about EBITDA versus gross valuation, and it has to do with how much your business is worth. So first of all, Brian, define EBITDA, E-B-I-T-D-A. Yeah, EBITDA is net earnings, so your profit, before adding back interest expense, income taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So it's really your net profit, excluding any borrowing that you've had to do to uh, in your business, uh, excluding any depreciation, again, and amortization, which is really an accounting thing, uh, adjustment. So taking those out, what is your, your business truly, what's its clean net earnings? So do most people, do you think, really know what their EBITDA really is, or do they need help from an accounting firm in order to figure it out? Well, yeah, I mean, no no one goes around going, yeah, I checked out my EBITDA today. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's probably not something people, people normal people do. I, I probably know mine more than anybody, sure. but of course I'm in the business. And and different ways to look at this is, is say, okay, uh, I got a business. Oh, do you? Okay, well, you know, what's it worth? Well, I don't know. Uh, what, what is it gross? Gross is $10 million. Okay, great. Uh, what are your expenses? Mm, Eleven million. It's like, well, okay. you don't have much of a business there. Uh, the next person might say, "Well, gross is ten, and I I net two. I'm like, great, two million dollars uh, EBITDA earnings, net profit. You have something to sell. You have a business there. So yeah, just because you have a business doesn't mean it's profitable." And so this is really what we're talking about. If you're thinking about doing succession planning or selling your business someday. 
then one of the things that someone's going to look at, they're going to want to calculate what are your true clean net earnings from this business, and we we call that that term EBITDA. So is it fair to ask you if you do have a business with, let's say, that maybe it's a trucking firm or something like that, and its annual revenue is $10 million, as you said, we just picked that figure out of the air. Once you figure your EBITDA on that, is there roughly, I mean, can you even say what your true profit may be with something like that? Yeah, you can. And and so there's a couple of things. There's really three ways that we could value this example. So one would be on EBITDA. So we've got this trucking company. You're coming in fresh off the street. You're going to take over this thing and it makes a million a year. Okay. So we, we know what its earnings are. Now, someone else might say, well, I already have a trucking company. I'm going to fold theirs in. I'm going to cut down on overhead. So even though it's only making a million a year right now, I know that with my economies of scale, we're going to get that million up to three million. So it's worth more to that person than it is to someone off the street. A third way of looking at this is let's say a trucking company doesn't make a profit, but it owns 10 trucks. Well, now we're going to value it not based on EBITDA, we're going to take the greater of EBITDA, in this case, zero times a multiple, zero, or the net liquidation value of the trucks. So we know that we can go to the auction and sell the trucks for a million dollars. Well, the business is worth at least a million dollars. If if it's profiting a million a year, it might be some multiple of that. It might be, you know, three million or four million or five million, whatever that multiple is. And as a buyer, I might know, hey, yeah, I'm willing to pay three or four million because I know I'm going to help it make three million a year. And so as a buyer would be more susceptible to buy that if they think that they can improve it. So there's different ways that people are going to look at your business and this valuation. But you hopefully will get your EBITDA. That's how you get the higher price if if your earnings, your net profits are high. So in the old days, if you had a business that made a million dollars a year, I mean, there were multiples, as you said. You could times that by three or four. I mean, a million annual, you could get three, four million dollars out of it. But that isn't as accurate as using the EBITDA method. The other method we talked about was gross valuation. We've touched on that a little bit, but can you expand? Yeah. Uh, let me use my CPA, a CPA firm as an example. So one way to look at it, of course, is EBITDA, as I mentioned. And you might be able to sell that for, you know, because it's recurring revenue. We know that people have to do their taxes every year. Maybe you're going to get six times net profit for that. So if it made a million a year, you, you could sell it for maybe $6 million. That's great. Another way of looking at it would be on gross valuation. Some CPA firms are sold based upon just my gross. So if I made a million dollars and my gross was four million, say, they might say, all right, I'll give you one times gross. As just a ballpark, most CPA firms will have certain profit margin they would figure. So regardless of your EBITDA, I'll give you one times gross. So that would be four million dollars in this case if you're grossing four million. The third way, again, I I mentioned liquidation value. Uh, We come in and look at, okay, what's the value of all your stuff? Well, uh, the CPA firm has some pencils and adding machines, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and and a couple of green visors or whatever, and uh, 30 bucks. You know, your stuff, it ain't even worth anything. So uh, liquidation value of a CPA firm, pretty much nil. You know, again, it could be the simple calculation of gross valuation. But if I'm buying, I want to know what its net profit is because that's really what I can count on. So in our example, Andy has the pizza place there. He may own the building. He may not own it. But he's got the pizza ovens. He's got some inventory. He's got freezers, refrigerators, that sort of thing with equipment. But Paul, who owns the personal injury firm, he doesn't have any of that. 
No, he doesn't have anything. Now, a lot of businesses have real estate too. So I've had businesses like uh, maybe it's a florist or or some other business and they own uh, the, the real estate. Most of the sales price is probably going to be in the real estate. Uh, you could have a veterinary firm and those have two components because you can hire other veterinarians and have them come in and do the work because people are used to coming there. It's a re- kind of a recurring thing. You got your steady customers, so you have a, a big profitability and you have a big multiple on EBITDA. And often they own the real estate too, so they might bifurcate that sale and sell the business as one thing. You're selling the goodwill essentially the intangible asset. And separate from that, you can sell the real estate as a tangible asset. So when it comes to valuing your business, certainly there is the real estate aspect. As you've you've said, there is the equipment part of it. What have you got in there? Is goodwill and a customer base any consideration? Yeah, that's where you get the the big increase because any business, you can say, all right, I'll, you know, Amazon or whatever, you can say, all right, the value of your, I don't know, your trucks and so forth is is maybe 1% of what your company stock trades for on the market because of all the goodwill. The goodwill meaning we know we've got uh, we've got you uh, taken care of a uh, customer base. We know you're coming back to us every single day buying stuff. And so when you have goodwill, that's where your your business can have one of these higher multiples. And again, it's worth the, the greater of the earnings times a multiple or its net liquidation value. Uh, most businesses, you don't want to sell based on the net liquidation value. You want to assume there's some goodwill there, that you have a profitable business that somebody wants to buy and they're willing to pay three, four, five, six, seven times earnings for that. So that's that's what we're talking about here is, is that profitability is really going to be assigned to goodwill. So Steve, who has the battery store, I mean, he's got a lot of goodwill because he's been selling those batteries for, you know, 25, 30 years now. That's the goodwill part of it. A lot of customer recognition for his name. There's some value to that, but he also has all this inventory in terms of the batteries and and so forth and all the things that he sells. So there's a lot of value to that, too. Which is the more accurate way to determine the value of your business? Is it gross valuation or is it EBITDA, a combination of both or neither? It's going to be somewhat of a combination. It's going to be adjusted EBITDA. So what I mean by that is I'm going to look at your EBITDA and then I'm going to say, all right, yeah, but you're working there. So when you're gone, what's that going to do to my sales and my costs? Because I got to replace you. So the first thing I'm going to do is adjust your salary out and adjust a new set of salary in to replace you and maybe adjust the top line and do a new calculation of, I'll I'll call it adjusted EBITDA. And once I have that and I'm comfortable that I know what the profitability will be once you're gone as a seller and I'm the buyer, once you're gone as a seller, I know what the profitability is. I'll have a sense of how much I'm willing to pay for that based upon how confident I am that that profitability will continue on or grow from this point forward. So let's say I, t- I paid you know five times your, your profit. That number would be the best thing for the seller. And that's the most accurate. Because, you know, you can have two businesses side by side. They sell the same thing. Well, in fact, I'll do an example. You got two businesses that sell hamburgers. And one of them makes a ton of profit a year. And one of them, you hardly ever see a car there, you know, because one's McDonald's and the other mm-hmm. one is, is not. And the McDonald's is killing it, selling the same things that one next door is. So just because they both, you know, look the same doesn't mean they have the same profitability. So that that's something to, to consider. If you have the sort of business that can offer a franchise, maybe they have a few franchisees, I would imagine that that greatly ups the value of the business or does it not? 
Yeah, as I mentioned in the last segment, anything that takes away risk as a buyer increases the the value of a business. So if if I know I have the support of a, a franchise organization and I have the buying power and the and the advertising and so forth, I know pretty comfortably that I, I know what I'm getting myself into. There's not a lot of distress there. Then I'm willing to pay more for that business. So yeah, all of these things factor in. But uh, certainly, just understanding that a business, you know, okay, you have a business. So what? Do you make that profit? And what does that look like? And and so if you're thinking about these things now, you'll be more prepared when you actually think about selling or buying. Now, remember, every time someone sells a business, someone's buying a business. So you might be listening to this going, I don't have a business. Well, maybe you want to buy one. So wouldn't you like to know that to look for this when you're buying it? Because there's going to be all these businesses for sale and all these businesses being bought. And so that's something to consider, especially for younger people wanting to get in. There's going to be a huge opportunity in the years ahead with baby boomers selling their small businesses. And once again, I want to reiterate that Madrona Financial is not a business broker, but rather they certainly help you stage your business and get the most for it. Brian, in your experience of dealing with people who are selling businesses, do you find that most people when they come into you really could benefit from your services in terms of staging and doing the accounting on that business? Do most people have a good idea of what their business is worth or have you really increased the value of a business? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, if you've been listening in the last 10 minutes and you have learned nothing new, then you don't need us. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> but if there's something you've heard that go, huh, I hadn't thought about that, then yeah, we certainly could help you, uh, obviously. So that's, <laughs> I think that's a great way to look at it. And, and just, just having the, the, the thought about it. Cause what I've found is we work with tons of business owners, uh, in my CPA firm, my investment company, all this stuff, lots and lots and lots, hundreds of business owners, certainly with the CPA firm. And if you ask them, you know, how much time have you spent in the last year thinking about your succession plan, they might say, well, I don't know, about 30 seconds. <laughs> and, you know, it's just not something you think about. And it's like, well, I think I'm going to do this forever. And like, well, you're 65. <laughs> you're, you're probably not. And, and oh, yeah, yeah, maybe I should start thinking about that. So most people have not sat down. It's, it's you know, there's certain things in our life we, we don't spend a lot of time on maybe our legacy plan, our will, our living trust and, and important documents, our succession plan at work with our business and so forth. These aren't things that you think about when you get up in the morning and you think about other things and, and other things get your attention. But I can't think of anything really more important uh, when it comes to your finances and thinking about these things. Yeah, you're right. When it comes to uh, deciding how much, uh, you know, you're going to pay for a pair of shoes, a lot of people spend more time on that. I mean, picking out a nice pair of shoes than they do for all the important things in their life. So very important to consult with a professional who can guide you along the way. Your business may certainly be a lot more saleable by using the services of Madrona Financial Services to help you stage that business and get the most for it. And if you're a buyer, there's a lot of good information that Madrona Financial can help you with as well, too. Once again, if you'd like more information about this topic, you can call 844-MADRONA to talk about it, 844-M-A-D-R-O-N-A. Also, the number to call if you have at least $500,000 or more to invest and you're looking to hire a new financial advisor. Contract Madrona Financial to get your complimentary no-cost, no-obligation plan. Once again, it's 844-MADRONA, or you can request it online by visiting madronafinancial.com. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. When we come back after this break, we'll be talking about selling your business internally or externally. All that and more when our show continues after this. Now, back to more of Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. 
Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. In this segment, we'll be talking about buying or selling a business internally versus externally. And if you own a business and are considering selling it, you can really sell it to three primary buyers. Number one, to your family, your children. Number two, internally to employees. And number three, to an outside entity. So let's start off, Brian, with number one, to your family or children. I would imagine that that is, sort of makes it a little sticky, or does it? <laughs> yeah. Anytime you have family and business in the same sentence, you got stickiness. Yeah, right. Potentially. So, but you know, that's, there's a lot of businesses out there that they're generational and they're, they're kind of passed down to kids. And so, you know, you might have that kind of business that, that you can and, and your kids are been working in it and they want to take it over and continue it on. That's great. I mean, that's, that's, I think that's a, a real win for a lot of people. There's obviously, there's some downside to that. Uh, one of the things is your kids don't probably have any money <laughs> to give you to buy that business. Right. And so you're not going to get a big sum of money for your retirement. One of the issues can be, you know, and it happens to a lot of farms right now, where you might have three kids and one or two of them want a farm and one of them does not. And so how do you pass that along and, and make it fairer? Uh, if you wanted to leave everybody kind of the same amount of money when you leave this earth and you leave the, the primary asset to one or two of the kids, the other one's kind of aced out in that s- situation. So when you have multiple kids and you're leaving uh, the business or selling the business to them, that can be an issue. So that's why you might want to do a sale so that they actually pay for it out of profits. Uh, that That's one way to do that, uh, to avoid that. But, you know, sometimes that's just not possible. So, you know, there's, there's you, you can intersperse, you know, life insurance policies to take care of the, the kid that isn't staying in the business and so forth. But yeah, there's there's a lot of internal stuff, non-financial considerations, we'll call it, mm-hmm. when selling a business to your family or, or children. That's right. And, you know, family and children, as you said many times, do not have a down payment. They don't have enough money to buy the business outright. They may not have enough credit to be able to float a loan for that particular type of business. So you end up carrying the note most of the time. And if it comes along that uh, son or daughter, or son-in-law, whatever it is, cannot pay that note one month, what do you do? Yeah, what are you going to do? That's going to be awkward Thanksgiving when yeah. you're foreclosing on them and taking that That's business right. back. So, you know, there's there's one of the issues uh, certainly is that you, you're not going to have a lot of teeth once you've sold that business. Right. Uh, you're you're kind of at the, the mercy of whoever's buying it to, to do the right thing and run it the way you would want it run. So, yeah, that, that can be an issue, no no doubt about it, because if I sold to uh, somebody else, well, I could foreclose on it, take it back. What, okay, that's fine. Uh, I don't see them at Thanksgiving, in this case you would. So you're able to do maybe a contract. I mean, it isn't just a, a word, you know, hey, I'll take your word for it type of thing. Even if you are selling it to family or children, you still should do some sort of a contract, right? Absolutely. You got to do a contract. And again, this could go into the fairness thing. So you say, well, I have this asset, but um, it's worth, uh, say, it's a million dollars. And that's really all I have. But I have two kids and one of them's going to buy the business. Well, I'm going to make them pay me a million dollars over time. So when I pass away, there's a, let's say I passed away soon. Uh, I, I've got a million dollar note. 
And so the person, that, the kid that bought the business, will just have that one forgiven. That's their inheritance, and they just owe on half the the other half remaining to the other sibling, and they'll pay that sibling over time. So that's that's one way to do it. You know, certainly, if you're having your kid buy the business, now some people aren't going to have their kids pay them anything for their business. They're just going to elect to pass it along to them, and so there is no note. So uh, you know that depends on your financial situation whether you can do that or not. So selling to family. Family children could be sticky, but, you know, it is a way to pass on a little bit of a legacy, keep at least your name on the business insofar as your heirs go. So that's number one, family and children. Number two, a lot of people have loyal employees who have worked for this business for 20, 30 years. And when the owner decides to sell it, they're more than willing and really want to take it over. So what's involved with selling internally to employees? Yeah, so that also has positives and negatives, like everything that we talk about on this show. But uh, I, I have a, a good example of that. Uh, there was this firm, oh, it was 30 years ago, uh, this, this fellow, his name is uh, Bob. And uh, oh, yeah, he, yeah. he decided to, uh, uh, he had an employee that he thought was doing really good. And he wanted to keep that employee. And that employee needed to have a, an ownership stake to stay on. So this person, Bob, elected to sell half of the business to his key employee that was helping him grow the business. And so they became partners. And he did that because the employee didn't have any extra money to pay down on this. He did it on a contract. And that employee's share of the profits, most of it went to pay the payment on the contract. Some of it went to income taxes because that that new uh, employee that was buying in now was uh, allocated half of the profits of the firm. But again, half that most of that profit went to Bob, in this case, uh, for the payments. And after a period of time, that employee owned his, his half of the business. That employee was me. And that's how I bought into Bauer Evans CPAs. And then we did it again later. And so I bought the other half using that approach. And so that worked out great because the second half was worth a lot more than the first half was sold for because together we were synergistic and grew the firm. And I was able to pay Bob a lot more money for the second half than, than he sold the first half for. So that was a win-win. Uh, he, he won, I won, and we had a, a proper business succession. And someday I'll be doing that with my employees. So in this case, it all worked out well and Bob carried the note on the business. But I mean, when you sell internally to employees, does the owner always carry the note or can the uh, owner insist that the employees get together and as a group get credit and buy the business out from you? Yeah, there's different ways you can do that. Certainly at the time, uh, that was really the only option we had. But uh, the employee could go get a loan, a family loan, an SBA loan if they have assets to secure that. Uh, maybe the company itself could take out a loan, uh, but in, in that case, the owner's probably guaranteeing that. But it, that is a way to create cash up front for the owner. But uh, you know, they're, again, they're guaranteeing the repayment of it through the business. But uh, so, so there, yeah, there's different ways you can do that. Um, certainly, it could be a combination of that. But probably most often, I've seen uh, employee buy-ins not have a, a, any uh, down payment. They've kind of paid their dues for years. They know the business inside and out. They're really good at what they do. They're trustworthy. The, the owner knows that when they bring in that these people uh, like that, they're they're going to 
going to make their payments. And that's what Bob did. He knew he knew he, who he was dealing with. He'd see me do my work and and knew I was I was good for it and would help him grow the business. And that's exactly what happened. And he he never had a late late uh, payment. So the chances of a business succeeding, I think, are much greater if you're selling it internally to employees because they've been running the business uh, pretty much for you for all of these years. To your family and children, maybe not as uh, much, but certainly there are a lot of considerations when you're selling to family and children and internally to employees that you wouldn't have if you sell to an outside entity. It can be a little more sticky. So let's talk about selling to an outside entity, a much different situation, it sounds like. Yeah, to an outside entity, uh, again, positive and negatives. Uh, One of the negatives to getting cashed out, well, that's also positive here because more likely than not, the outside entity is going to cash you out. They're not going to make you carry a a contract for a long period of time. So that's great. Uh, Money up front is great. That's a big positive. Tax-wise, maybe, maybe not uh, as positive because if you have a a big gain in one year, uh, certainly under some of the new tax proposals, you know, your your tax rate or in the state of Washington, if if capital gains is too high, they want to take money from your account or whatever, uh, your taxes may be higher. If you sold it over time, you would sell on an installment sale. The installment sale would only tax based on the principal you receive annually. So your capital gains will be rate will probably be lower over time. But uh, even given that, I'd probably want to take my money up front. So ideally, I would, you know, to get the most for your firm, you're probably selling to an outside entity. The problem with that is, what about your family? <laughs> you know, a kid might be going, well, what about me, dad? I've been working right. for your firm for 20 years here, and now you're selling it to somebody else? I'm, I'm out of a job? That's <laughs> not really great. And then your key employees are going, yeah, me too. I've been working here 30 years, and now you're just selling it, and I'm going to get nothing for all that time I put in? And, oh, what's up with that? So, yeah, a big negative to uh, selling externally, potentially, depending on who's there. But if you just have, you know, a lot of part-time people and nobody's been there all that long. I was talking to somebody with a firm like that. He said, I don't have anybody who's been here more than a year. Wow. Uh, I, you know, I, it's uh, maybe it was a veterinary firm, I think it was. And, and I was like, okay, well, then you, you don't have anybody to sell it to anyway, internally. You don't have any family members to take it over. Sell it to that outside entity. They're going to, ca- they, they cashed them out for millions and millions and then uh, lease the building that he owns. So worked out great for him. So very often the situation is selling to an outside entity can be best. So if you're selling to an outside entity, again, two choices there. You can uh, be cashed out, get uh, one lump sum payment all up front, or you can take a payment schedule on that. I think we may have uh, touched on it a little bit, but the tax ramifications of taking one big lump sum versus taking payments, it's sort of like when you're offered a, a pension versus, uh, you know, you can get it in one lump sum or you can get it over a period of time. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, you know, with some of the the tax law changes, as I mentioned, depending on what happens there, if you go over certain thresholds now, you might be penalized for taking it all at once. So, and and certainly can put you in a higher bracket. You could have capital gains at and multiple brackets depending on how much income is received at once. So, but with an installment sale, again, you you pay the tax over time as you receive principal and interest over time. You you pay tax on it. I did want to point out one other thing. We're talking about selling a business for every business. Business uh, sold, as I mentioned, there's a buyer. 
Now, the, the best time in history I've ever seen for young people to establish themselves as business owners and find a business or an opportunity where you have the owner is in their 60s, say, and, and they're not going to want to do this forever, to uh, become a key employee and talk about the transition, the succession plan of buying a business on a contract. So if you're a young person with a good skill set and you want to be a business owner someday, rather than starting a business from scratch and trying to get 20 years in before you really maybe have a successful business, mm-hmm. why not just pick up one that already is successful. I did it. Thanks, Bob, for letting me buy in. And I did it and never looked back. And so it worked great for me. I didn't want to start from scratch with no clients and spend all that time making all the the introductions and to try and get enough clients to have a successful business. Bob already had them. I just had to walk in and do the work. It was great. So it was a great scenario there for me. Uh, So I'd encourage young people to think about that if you want to own a business. There's going to be a lot of them available for sale. So we've been talking about uh, selling your business into Internally or externally, a little bit about buying a business too. Of course, your family and children internally to employees can be a little more sticky than selling it to an outside entity. Once again, questions about your business, selling or buying, 844-MADRONA, the number to call to get some advice, 844-MADRONA. Also the number, if you have $500,000 or more to invest, you're looking to hire a financial advisor or you don't have a plan and you want a complimentary, no cost, no obligation plan. Again, $500,000 or more to invest, call 844-MADRONA or you can request it online at madronafinancial.com. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth. We'll be right back with more of our show after this. Now, back to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about asset-based plans and long-term care. And Brian, more than 50% of people will need long-term care in their lifetime, according to a survey that I read about. But I think that's rather a low number. I mean, if you're 65 and you're still in good health, I think probably there is a really great chance that you're going to need long-term care. Yeah, I mean, there's different definitions of long-term care, of course, too. You know, there's the, the typical nursing home, full-on long-term care. But maybe you don't need a nursing home, maybe an assisted living facility. Maybe you need some in-home help. Maybe it's 24-7, maybe it's a couple hours a day. So there's, there's certainly all different variations on what long-term care is. But I think we can all agree that most... Most people at some point in their lifetime are going to need some help. Uh, you know, unless you get hit by the proverbial bus or, right. or have a heart attack, uh, you're probably going to need some kind of help sometime in your life. So there are basically about four or five ways to pay for long-term care. We're going to be talking about that using asset-based plans. So first of all, talk about asset-based plans. What is the definition of that? Yeah, asset-based plan means that you put in a large lump sum at the beginning and you're buying usually uh, something that goes up with inflation, some inflationary factor, uh, some future potential benefit that you don't have to pay monthly on anymore because you put a whole bunch of money up front. And so the insurance company is promising, okay, we'll pay X amount per month up to X amount per month based upon some inflationary adjustment, as I mentioned, for a period of time or unlimited, or maybe it's on a single life, maybe it's on uh, two lives, whatever. But there'll be some amount that they will allow for you to have. It's a, let's, I'll just throw out a, a number. Let's say you put 100000 into it. They might allow four or 500000 of long-term care to be paid to you if needed. 
if you don't use it or need it, then an asset-based plan, unlike virtually every other kind of insurance other than life insurance, will have some kind of refund to your heirs and so if you don't use it. So that can be a really good good way to go, an asset-based plan. The, the issue is, though, that you got to put a big chunk of money down up front. So for, uh, paying for long-term care, of course, we know long-term care is very, very expensive uh, here in this part of the country. Long-term care is really quite a lot, isn't it? Let's talk about what it is in terms of uh, if you were in a full-blown in-house nursing facility. Yeah, every time I look at those stats, I, I look at them and go, ooh, that's low because they're always United States stats. So they're they're saying what it is in Nebraska, what it is in you know Missouri, what it is in Washington. Ours is, is higher. So yeah, I, I would say it's certainly going to be, you can count on you know, 100000 a year or more for a good long-term care place in the state of Washington for full-on long-term care. Now, one of the things to consider, though, is that often men don't have as long of a stay uh, on average as women can. And so these are just averages. I mean, your, your, your results will vary, you know, so... These are just averages, but often men don't have a long, long-term care stay as long as women do. But uh, yeah, it can be very expensive. Now, one of the things on these uh, asset-based plans, they don't pay 100% of your long-term care unless you put in a whopping sum. Mm-hmm. So they're designed to take the sting out of it. So maybe your budget was 100 grand a year in spending on, on things, but then you need long-term care, and that's 100 grand, and you still have some spending. Well, you have other sources of income, Social Security, pensions, real estate whatever you have, your investments, to make up for some of the rest of that. Also, if you were budgeting $100,000 for spending and you have to have long-term care, you're probably not going to spend that much because uh, you're not going to take trips. You're not going to buy a lot of gifts. You're not going to do a lot of things you had planned on doing. So you can pay for long-term care a number of different ways. We're talking about the asset-based plans. But other than that, of course, you can just write the check every month right out of the hip pocket. Most people are not plumbed to do that. Many of our listeners may be plumbed to do that. There's also, if you're a veteran, something called aid and attendance. You can get some help there with that, which is a reimbursement plan. Uh, of course, long-term care insurance is another way to do it. And uh, Medicaid, nobody really wants to go down that route. So let's talk about these asset-based plans a little bit more. Could you fund long-term care by using an annuity? And if you can, tell me more about how you would do that. Now, some annuities have some kind of accelerators to them if you need long-term care. And so annuity by annuity will have different potential, uh, we'll call it bells and whistles, that can offer that kind of thing. So that is one place to look. Yeah, you can fund uh, long-term care on a monthly basis, but the problem with that is often those costs go way up as you age. And uh, when you age, uh, you maybe don't have as much money as you did when you were young and working. So that can be a real problem if, you know, an 85-year-old is looking at, gosh, I can't afford these long-term care policy payments anymore. I'm on a fixed income. So that's a real, real problem there. Uh, You mentioned Medicaid. Medicare that people get at age 65 does not cover long-term care. It covers maybe three months, but that's about it. And so you're not going to rely on Medicare. Medicaid will kick in and pay for long-term care if you run out of assets. So that's, you know, we don't want to be that. But, you know, for a lot of people, that's the reality. If they need long-term care, they don't have a lot of assets. They have to use them up, essentially. And then the government will pick up the tab along with the state to for Medicaid. And so those are ways to do it. Um, There's also in the state of Washington, they have that new long-term care tax. Uh, That's not going to do a lot of good for a lot of people. It doesn't cover enough. And a lot of people that would be paying into it actually won't even be eligible for it because they, they want to pay it into it for more than 10 years. So that is not, don't, don't bank on that as being your, your long-term care plan. 
Let's talk about insurance as an asset-based plan to pay for long-term care. Are there insurance policies that will pay you a death benefit, but you can draw on those policies to get some portion of your death benefit while you're living to pay for long-term care and then reduce the death benefit? Yeah, as I mentioned, you know, different annuities and, and life insurance policies can have different bells and whistles uh, related to that. There's so many annuities and, and life insurance policies and companies out there offering them, we, we can't even get into that, nor can we on the radio talk about any specific products, so we don't. So I just want to say, in general, yeah, there are opportunities for, for that kind of thing. Now, you also mentioned earlier that a lot of people aren't plumbed for it. And a lot of people are. They go, well, you know, uh, if I did have long-term care, let's say the average stay is a year or two, and you said 100000 a year, and let's say both of us needed two years. Well, that's $400,000. Well, our net worth statement says $4 million. I think we're fine. Right. We can pay for that uh, out of our own money. Now, sure, if we both need 10 years, that's, that's, that's a whole different story, but uh, maybe we feel uh, like our net worth is high enough to where we don't necessarily need to buy an external policy. Another issue, uh, yeah, I want to buy a policy, but all of my net worth is tied up in IRA funds. Well, you're going to have to pay the tax on that to take out enough money to make the, the big down payment on the asset-based plan. So that may not be your favorite thing either because you're going to be taxed at ordinary income rate. And uh, if you have to take out a whole bunch of money all at once, it might pop you in a really high bracket. So that's another thing to consider. Brian, no secret that long-term care is very expensive, and I know a lot of our listeners have thought about that and thought about asset-based plans, but how can you determine whether or not an asset-based plan is something that you can realistically do? Yeah, well, the first thing is, I mean, we talked about can you afford it, you know, because it takes a lot of money up front. Uh, the next thing is, will you qualify? If you've had a, a stroke and, and have, you know, your diabetes and this, that, and the other, they're probably not going to issue you a policy. you gotta, you got to pass the physical. So there's two things right there. Can you afford it? And will you qualify before we even want to look into it at all? And the other thing is really you need a financial plan done to say, all right, do I have enough assets to self-fund it? Do I not? Do I have too little assets to where, gee, I, I, I'm going to put, uh, I'm thinking about putting $200,000 into one of these plans to cover long, help cover long-term care, but my net worth is 300000 <laughs> So then in that case, I'd say don't buy the plan because you need the money to live on, and if you do need long-term care, you'll you'll have to go for Medicaid. So certainly doing the financial plan ahead of time as and making this just one of the questions that you're analyzing, what does it look like if I do need long-term care down the road? Is this something I should consider buying? Is it something I can afford? Is it something that I qualify for? You know, just, just go through that assessment. Brian, would you say that paying for long-term care is one of the biggest considerations that you have when designing financial plans for the average investor? Yes and no. I mean, uh, certainly we work with a lot of investors that, uh, as you mentioned earlier, they can afford to self-fund. And so a lot of my clients that, you know, we do the plan and we look at it and go, yeah, you're you're fine uh, if you need long-term. Well, you're not fine if you need long-term care, but you're fine financially based on our projections. So uh, a lot of times I find that that is the case because I'm working with higher net worth folks. But certainly for most people out there, it's not an easy call. And uh, do you want to give up a lot of money now for the what if down the road? Or do you want to kind of take your chances that things will work out and, you know, or maybe have family members that can help out? There's there's a lot of unanswered questions. It's, it's not an easy equation to solve for because it involves a lot of non-financial 
financial considerations. Well, I think the takeaway from this conversation is that long-term care is something that we're pretty much all going to face unless, as you said, we get hit by the proverbial bus. It's unexpected. It happens quickly. Most of us are going to need some form of long-term care, whether it's going into a facility, having some outpatient uh, work there, or having someone come into the house and paying for it is quite another story. So asset-based plans, certainly it is something that you should consider. And again, you've got questions. Madrona Financial has answers for you on this topic. Once again, questions about asset-based long-term plans, call 844-MADRONA, 844-MADRONA. Also, if you have $500,000 or more to invest, you're looking to hire a new financial advisor. Or if you don't have a financial advisor, you're looking for that initial plan, no cost, no obligation for it. Again, at least $500,000 to invest. Call 844-MADRONA, 844-MADRONA, or you can request your plan online at madronafinancial.com. Brian, always a pleasure to talk with you every week. I enjoy our time together, but it has come to a close. For Brian Evans, I'm Jeff Shade. Get out there, have a great weekend, won't you? We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Growing Your Wealth. No statements made during the Growing Your Wealth radio show shall constitute tax, legal, or accounting advice. You should consult your own legal or tax professional on your individual information. Brian Evans of Madrona Financial Services is licensed to offer investment advisory services through Madrona Financial Services, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Insurance products are offered through Madrona Insurance Services, LLC, a licensed insurance agency and an affiliate of Madrona Financial Services. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Investors cannot invest directly into indexes. No investment strategy, including asset allocation or diversification, guarantees a profit or guarantees the avoidance of loss. Financial planning is an important tool that does not guarantee specific outcomes. 